Hey, Mr. Lawson. Hello. <laughs> good to see you. <laughs> very, very good to see you. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while, but actually only just over two years since yeah, we well, last it was, met yeah, in person, right? De- December 2019. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it was yeah, the, yeah. The, the last night of the, the Devon tour. I was the last night, yeah. Was it was, yeah. And that, cause, which was why it was kind of, everything was really scattered because everybody was getting on different buses and going to different planes. And, and uh, yeah. I, you know, I, f- I felt really lucky to get a little bit of time with you and, and uh, Nathan at the end of the show. You know, cause, um, it, was, it was odd because it was one of those things where I knew half the band. So you know, it was like it was like whose guest list am I going to be on? <laughs> but uh, but you know, and I, and I got a very kind of quick say hello. I got a quick hello to Mike as well, but I didn't get to see Dev. And uh, you know, and he and I, whenever he comes through Birmingham, we get to meet up and and, and hang. And uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a crazy night, but an extraordinary gig. I mean, what an amazing amazing thing to have done. You know, I don't know. It's it, it felt like a a, a a remarkable undertaking. Yeah, you know. Um... I've told this story um, once, twice already, but you don't know about this. Like <laughs> on on this on the Devon tour, the Helsinki show, um, I had an out of body experience. <laughs> wow! Which meaning, like, I it felt like as if I was watching the show from the outside mm. while I was on stage playing, and it was incredibly remarkable. I don't don't know how to explain it even to people because it was. It was really something special, and and, and obviously yeah. I did not leave my body, but it was that kind of experience. Like I'm, I'm actually experiencing this as somebody um, watching, listening from the outside. That's and amazing. Yeah, it was it was an extraordinary tour. Yeah, no, I could. I, I mean, it was just like seeing it, and, and on that scale, it felt like. I mean, it, it felt like it was the the level of ambition that someone like Peter Gabriel would put into a tour on the assumption that he was going to sell 15,000 tickets a night. And, you know, mm-hmm. to do something on that scale, uh, you know, and be playing, I mean, they weren't small venues, but they were, they were, they were club, large club venues mm-hmm. was, you know, that I, 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 I absolutely love Dev's ambition with those kind of things. It's like, <laughs> yeah. like I yeah. can't, yeah. I think, I think partly because I'm, I look at it from completely the opposite spectrum that I've stripped away everything that is not the music. Like I kind of, I don't, I, that, that, that I, I spend no time at all. <laughs> yeah. You see, that's, that's kind of like the, the, the approach of, um, let's just call it us, right? That's, yeah, it, yeah. it's, it's our, our kind of life, which means like we have to minimize everything. We have to go from say schlepping around like 40 kilos in the mid nineties to maybe now four or five kilos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, thank, I think this, this theme of kind of like, you know, like using technology and using the, like mm. uh, really technology to kind of like make our lives easier and even make our, our, uh, our profession possible for us. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, that, I, that's something that, I mean. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, cause, cause I, I do, I see old photos of me when I used to carry around like a, a, a for you mixer rack. And it, I had it, you know, I'd, I'd have a fourteen-channel Mackie desk on tour with me, like wired into the top of this rack, and two Lexicons and two uh, uh, Echoplexes and a Chaos Pad, and then outboard pedals and stuff as well, and 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 you know, big amps, and it was just, God, just a, a headache. 
Yeah, I, I remember those days. I remember seeing you uh, in Norwich in two, 2001, 2002 or whatever. That's exactly that the rig I would have had at that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was craziness. And it was, and it was, and, and now it's like, you know, I can, I, I, so I did my first bit of playing last week, my first bit of playing in front of people since the pandemic. So two years. And it was just a masterclass in a, in a, in the, actually it's in the college I teach at, but I was kind of changing my hat and coming in as a guest rather than as a lecturer and it was an improv workshop and so I was like I was suddenly conscious that I was going to play my music rather than just demonstrating how to play some technique or whatever to a bass student so I took my my uh performance rig here which is which is this there we go that's it so I have the Cuneo uh Mod Duo X a preamp a chaos pad a reverb pedal and a and a uh, k-mix as the sort of mixer heart of it and I took it on. I, I took that and my bass and the con- foot controllers on my bike and rode into work. Oh, my camera's all gone wonky now. Let's straight straighten up. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, and I took all of that into it, it, you know did the four or five mile journey on my bike, and it was like, wow. I, I, has there ever been a time in my life when I could have got to a gig on my bike? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. And so yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, I'm so grateful for those those technological improvements that you're talking about because they make whole other levels of of well, so I, I, the, the one of the things that I've been thinking about with all this, because I think this plugs into the the concept of what it is that makes it possible for, for us to do what we do, which I think you kind of touched on there, that, that this changes in technology, that there's a whole load of stuff around that. And technology is one component of it, but culture is another and kind of communication tools. The fact that you and I could, you know, organize to tour together on, on you know, even the email, like, like, we we go back before that and everything was phone calls and leaving messages with hotel concierges and, and trying to organize stuff. And so it just didn't happen. And that space of possibles, which is what Pierre Bourdieu would call it, you know, the, the, all of the kind of things that, that culturally and socially and technologically and in terms of the way that, that people's perception of what a music performance needs to be and the kind of space we need to be in to do it. All of those changes have made so many things possible. Mm-hmm that are just, you know, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. And I, and, I, and I feel incredibly privileged to get to explore the micro end of that. Like, like what's, like, when I was working in, so I had a few years where alongside music, I was working in social technology and kind of doing a lot of, of uh, consulting around kind of using social media for charities and government and all kinds of stuff. And one of the things, one of the concepts that we used to have with that was the idea of MVP, minimum viable product. What was the smallest version of a thing that was actually worth doing? And and I think one of the things that technology has made us made possible for us is that as well as our rig being minimally viable now, the spaces that we can play in can shrink. The way that we can yeah. do things, the way we can extract value from that. So for me, being able to record it or stream it. You know, I've done gigs where four people have shown up and then you stream it. And so 400 people have seen it and you go, well, great. Well, that was worthwhile. So all of a sudden, I mean, it was worth playing to the four people, but economically that can be perilous. But suddenly having that that enhanced audience and being able to go the minimum viable version of this doesn't mean means I no longer need to sell fifty, hundred, two hundred tickets in order to make it possible. That again is kind of you know, and it, and and that has a spillover into the kind of music that we get to make because we're no longer thinking I need to write music that two hundred people want to listen to in a room. And I think that that expanding of the space of possibles is a really really exciting thing. Exactly. And I mean, that, that's one of the um, major things I wanted to talk 
um, to you about is like this, um, like on the surface, it may, may look like things have gotten more and more challenging for musicians, for artists, right? But at the same time, like things have never been as uh, available and, you know, the tools have never been available before to really kind of, as you say, to, to really do what, what we do, as you say, like we, we don't need to uh, think in terms of numbers anymore so much. No, no, and I, and I, th and I think, I think the, the thing that's got harder is to emulate the model of the sort of pre-internet age. And so there are, there are people who see, because so much of this is about how we, what we perceive success to be. And if we think that success requires us to, to be, our audience to be ever, consistently getting bigger, to play to, I remember as a, when I first started out, that I, I thought strangers were more important than people I knew. That when I got to play to people I didn't know, it felt like a real audience. And if I knew them, it was like, oh, well, these are just my mates showing up. And then I realized that actually the audience was a chance to meet people and that, you, that my audience were generally more interesting than me. So, it was, so I suddenly was like, well, actually, rather than getting obsessed with playing to strangers, it was like, well, I, I want to make sure that those strangers become part of a community. So, uh, and again, that flies in the face of all of the nostalgia that I grew up with, this idea that what I was trying to do was to go around the world and, 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 and have a, t I mean, I, I did, in 1999, I did a tour playing bass for Howard Jones, which was kind of the biggest sort of tour bus thing. And even that wasn't massive. It was just a band on a single bus. And I did that. And that felt like such an achievement at the age of 26 to be out on a tour bus with one of my childhood heroes. And, uh, and I think if I'd hung on to that and believed that that was what I needed to replicate in my solo career, the music would have been different. The context would have been different. I'd have had to start engaging record labels and publicists and all that kind of stuff. And I would have probably ended up massively in debt, miserable and not making all that much music. Because one of the, the things that, that I realized early on was that my own creative curiosity was going to result in far more music than a record label would ever let me release. And there were, I think the, the community that you and I were a part of at that time, the sort of extended community that, that kind of built up around, particularly I think Burning Sheds was kind of quite a, a, a key player in this. And the way that they started doing the, the CDR kind of releases, they had that sort of, that sort of you know, that almost like, like a sort of supermarket value line way of doing music. Where it was like, well, okay, the, the covers are all just got a sticker on a brown label. So it was, there was an aesthetic to it, but it was one that was, was kind of guerrilla on purpose and uh and i think that suddenly realizing that we could do that and actually make that part of the meaning and the story of what we were doing instead of pursuing this kind of 1980s version of bigness that that sort of modernist trajectory that it was like your band has to be bigger and bigger and bigger i was talking recently to the singer from a an indie band from the 90s called ned's atomic dustbin who I was a big fan of as a kid, partly because they had two bass players. Um, but they, uh, he was telling me that when they got, they, they, they sold, I don't know how many records in the UK, 60,000, 80,000, something like that, of an album, got signed in the US, went to America, sold half a million records, and were considered a failure. Because the expectation was, you, you, you have to be this big. If you're not, and I think their label thought they were going to be the sort of indie guitar version of Bush or something. I don't know what it was. They kind of, but it, like, they had projected onto them a number. And because they didn't meet that number, they were seen as failures. And it's like, and I'm, I, I'm looking back now, I think that I got really lucky to become a part of 
that extended community of people who were pursuing things in a different way. And it's funny because I think as a scene, I only see it kind of in retrospect. I didn't necessarily feel I was part of a scene at the time. And yet there were people I was absorbing ideas from. And there were people that I, you know, musically as well as, as kind of functionally. But there was, but there, we, all of our kind of orbits were overlapping and there were gigs that were opening up because I remember doing a show with Pete Chilvers and, uh, and it was organized by a guy who'd heard me on Late Junction. And I think he, I can't remember if he tried to book Pete or tried to book me. And then one of us recommended the other one and we ended up doing this gig somewhere outside Cambridge together. And it was just like these kind of different, these different worlds that overlapped. And I think for me at the time, especially, I was trying not to get too lost in bass world. I didn't want to play to rooms full of bass players. It wasn't that I minded bass players enjoying what I did, but there's a very distinct set of expectations that come with that. And so back to the thing about the space of possibles and kind of what that, what the affordances are for a certain kind of playing when your entire room are sat watching with a notepad, writing down the techniques you use and the time signatures. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know, that, that there is, you, you're setting them up for disappointment by trying to do something else. And so connecting with that community and the, the night that we, we, we played in Norwich, which was the night after, it was the night after the last night of the tour where I'd opened for Level 42. So the, the juxtaposition between those two, between playing those big venues and getting to the end of this tour and going, wow, I could do that once a year and actually kind of almost live on that. Like I didn't, you know, and especially once the POS royalties came in later on for my share of the kind of ticket royalty. Like it, there was a lot of money in that one month of touring. And yet creatively, it squashed me into this tiny box where I suddenly had a set list and was playing the same six tunes and the intros were the same. And it was because it, in order to connect with a thousand, fifteen hundred people or whatever, I mean, because they were, they were bigger venues than that, but most of the people were at the bar because who gives a shit about the support act, but, but playing to those, that kind of audience brought with it all these constraints. And then suddenly there we are in Norwich and it's this, crazy kind of rolling set list where everybody's set is overlapping with everybody else and we all get to play mad shit and it's where I met Theo Travis who I then ended up working with a lot and I think mine overlapped with at one end Theo and at the other end uh Roger Eno and you know and kind of getting to see all these people and meet people and it was like suddenly I'd gone from a space of of huge economic opportunity but really narrow creative limitations to one that economically made absolutely no sense at all. I mean, the idea that, that you know, the 15 or 20 people, how many people were playing that night, the idea that we could have actually made any money out of that wasn't even, nobody thought of that. We weren't, that's not why we were doing it. And yet the creative possibilities and the things that came out of that and the friendships and all that kind of stuff that came out of that was just enormous. And it was, and, it, and so as a really stark comparison of the world that is offered to us you know, the kind of, oh, if you play the game right, then you can go and do this and you can play at the Albert Hall and you can play at the Liverpool Philharmonic and you can open for bands that were famous when you were a kid. Or you can do this and you can find a way to make it sustainable um, and in the process get to play music with like-minded, curious, strange people. You know, if we want to analyse that in hindsight and... Uh, um... You know, really, the question we should ask, what is really the difference between playing the Level 42 opening act versus playing that house in Norwich 
that I can't remember the name of. And, um, and I think, I think, and, and you're a specialist for that, I know. So that's why I'm mentioning this. It is, it is, I think in the end, it's about the communication and like how you actually use the opportunities that each situation gives you. So what I, what I mean by that is that even in the context of the level 42 shows, there are, there would have been, let's say, opportunities to connect with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure you did, right? Uh, yeah, and I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that's where the, again, from a, because I'm, I'm in PhD brain at the moment, the, the theoretical framework for that is uh, Gibson's theory of affordances, that there are ways, there are things that are presented to you as opportunities that are kind of built into the design of the setting that you're in. And so with level 42, it was looking at it and going, well, where is my point of connection with this audience? I go, well, that's at the merch table. Not because I had to sell people stuff to make it worthwhile. I mean, it was great that I did, but, but I, I could have done without, you know, I didn't, it wasn't that I needed to go down there and hustle. It was that that was a place where there was a model for communication between support act and audience that wasn't weird that people weren't going to jump on me if I kind of just went and sat in the audience. People would have kind of been a bit shy to come and talk to me. Or if I'd been stood outside having a cigarette, I don't smoke. So that would have been particularly weird. But if I'd been outside, you know, then there, there were these sort of transactional spaces where you kind of, so I, there were, I mean, and I did, and I still have subscribers now on Bandcamp. We'll get into that later on, I guess. But um, I still have people who are part of my core audience whose first exposure to what I did with the Level 42 tour. So, and, and it wasn't like I wrote a separate bunch of music to play it. It was that I had to frame what I was doing, my kind of creative pursuits in this quite, I mean, and it's, and it's not even like it's a bad thing. It's not like I think that playing tunes the same way night after night is morally abhorrent. It's not like I go like, oh, I was a failure. It's not, you know, I didn't feel like I was prostituting myself. It's just that my curiosity as a musician has always been about the potential for improvisation to bring the unexpected into a situation. Mm -hmm. and uh, whether that's where I'm at now where I don't I never play I don't, I've done four gigs in 10 years with a set list and none of them were my own shows um where it's just a matter of you get up on stage and you play what feels right for the moment but you revisit vocabulary it's not like it's not like you you change you know a completely different musical world every night but the opportunity is there to draw on whatever it is that feels like the right thing for that moment mm -hmm. and so yeah, having you... having Sorry. Yeah, I think I think the the like the how do you say how shall I say is the medium the medium with which you're making the connection with people. Yeah, yeah. Can be can doesn't have to be the music. Like no, you no. know, in some cases, in some cases, uh, I think it's actually and there's there are also psychological uh, concepts for this. Like doing something that's unexpected will actually put you in touch with the people that need to make that need to experience you and where you need to experience them. Yeah. And, and, you know, so that's why there's always, you know, like there's some with, you know, touring with Stickman, for example, like I'm, you know, I, I love that gig and I, I really love that. And it's a real privilege to be paid for playing. But I would, I, you know, like, but without um, actually meeting people after the shows, I wouldn't really be happy. No, no, no. So, so you see, like, there's, there's the music, there's the music we play, and that's that's great, and it's wonderful that we can do what we do. But the social aspect, meeting the audience, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. that's what make that what makes the difference for, as you were saying, people that may sign up as 
uh, yeah. subscribers of Bandcamp, for example. Right? But but it also, and I think for me, and this is something that I've kind of again is why I'm doing the PhD, is that I got to the point where that was also that that reflection back of the experience of what I was trying to do through the audience was how I understood what I was trying to do. And the, so the audience, the significance of the audience has got greater and greater over the years. And I've kind of, I've spent the best part of 20 years curating spaces where my audience could gather and understand each other as much as me. And it wasn't, it wasn't about seeing them as a, as a resource to be exploited, more about generating a, a community space in which the conversation about the music and about other things could illuminate what it was that we were all trying to do with this stuff. So at the heart of it mm -hmm. is the music that I make, the shows, the recordings, whatever it is. But actually by, by presenting that to them, it's as much about me learning from their response to it as it is about me trying to sell them the stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that as an evolving kind of set of possibilities, the affordances for that with kind of different, as different tools emerged online. Um, but also, I th again, it's it's back to the thing about about the assumptions around what you do because it's not a thing that, that scales well. Like I couldn't do it, but you know, I, I don't think I could. I don't think I would be able to understand my audience if there were if there were five thousand of them. That I was if I had five thousand Bandcamp subscribers, the volume of input that I would get and the degree of impetus for them to speak into that community in order to connect with 5,000 people would mess up the, the, the kind of the, the sort of very conversational chatty nature of the way that things go on. Because I think one of the, this is, this is again, I suppose a specific example, but it might, it might illuminate what's going on here. One of the things that I really like about my communication with the subscriber audience, particularly is the fact that if I say something that's boring, they'll ignore it. Mm -hmm. So if I, I, I don't get knee-jerk reactions from people who just want to connect with me. And, I, one of, and funny, we were talking about Dev earlier on, because one of the things that, I, that sparked this thought in my head was the way that, that Devin can post a picture of any old shit on his Instagram, you know, a, 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 a view of a monkey's balls or a dog turd or just kind of mm. any absurd nonsense. And he'll get a bunch of people going, I love you, man, when are you coming to such and such a place? There's this bunch of responses. Mm. None of which he's got time to read, none of which are kind of, you know, would be valuable use of his time. But there, but there's this desperation to connect that would make it very difficult for him to be able to filter that into what's meaningful and what isn't. That at that scale, you don't get to have that conversation with your audience because there's this sort of inbuilt separation because they idolize you on a, on a, on a level. And I, and I, you know, and I think that 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 brings with it a set of opportunities and a set of things you can do. You know that that because of the scale at which you can work and the economics of that. But for me, I was like, I, I, I've always thought that actually having an audience that functioned more like a community and less like uh, me on a pedestal, pedestal and them kind of sort of, you know, I didn't need that separation that is at the heart of fame. What I wanted was a space in which I could actually talk to them about what I was doing and, I, and get honest responses. Um, but also the other the other thing that that I've creates a tension in there is that when people start to feel familiar with you, they can, uh, and they and I had this back kind of when I started out. They start trying to tell you what they think you should do, and they'll go, "You know what you should do, Steve? You should do a record with a drummer." And I'd be like, "Really? 
Because uh, uh, do you honestly think there's a lack of re- records with bass and drums on them? Is that a thing that you're missing in your life? Really? I'm hearing quite a lot of those around at the moment. I'm not hearing quite as much of what I'm doing. So maybe I'll just mm-hmm. stick with this. You know, and people would have their idea of what you should do. And what I realized the perfect answer to that was over the years was to say, they go, you know, you should do, you should do a record with a drummer. Like, no, no, you should. Because it's you that wants to hear it. Like, if you want to hire me to make that record, then fine. <laughs> I'll, come and, I'll come and record for you if you want to pay me. But it's clearly your vision that, is, that has produced that as a desire, not mine. This music didn't happen by accident. There's a, there's a, me- there's a method in, in my madness and kind of how I ended up here. So how about you let me get on with that? And you can talk to me about what it means to you. And I don't mind you wanting to hear what I would sound like with a drummer. I don't think that's a bad thing. But when you dump that on me as being, this is what you should do, then we've got a problem. And one of the interesting things about the way that the subscriber thing is set up is that nobody within that community has ever said to me, Here's what you should do. You know, there's a funny, there's there's a funny funny story about yeah, that is there's a funny story about like somebody telling me what I should do at some point after a show. This lady came and said, "Marcus, you should write a musical about the Van Steuben Turnpike, <laughs> which was somewhere in Pennsylvania." You know, my my response was because I didn't know. I suggested I should. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, I think the best, the best you should, the, my favorite one, and the, one, the only one I might ever do, is I was in a conversation on Facebook once, and, and I happened to mention that I'd never heard Bowie's Berlin trilogy. That I kind of, I know the singles off it, but I'm, I, I, my interest in David Bowie starts at Tim Machine. Like I'm kind of the early stuff is like it's fine, you know, it's whatever, but it, it sits in a place in culture that I'm not interested in exploring. So I said I hadn't heard it. And so there's another friend of mine on, uh, in the States who I met because his name is Steve Lawson as well. So we're only friends because we used to have to forward each other our email. Like I'd get email for him. and, he, and so, But we ended up being really good friends. And he said, you know what you should do? You should do your tributes to it, your version of it, without ever listening to it. So just go <laughs> record, re-record David Bowie's Berlin Trilogy based on what you imagine it should sound like. <laughs> which is just a great idea it's so a I great guess, idea yeah. so, so at some point you may well see three records from me called low and <laughs> whatever the other one was called um uh-huh. yeah so that, that might happen at some point but that was yeah that was but it was also another kind of indication of how of how you know things just these absurd things you know because that guy that was the other steve lawson has become a really good friend and he's somebody i you know who's He's a subscriber on Bandcamp. But when we, when we used to, he's, he's left Facebook now, but when we used to have conversations on there, it would really confuse me because it looked like I was talking to myself. Because it would just be <laughs> Steve Lawson replying to Steve Lawson all the way down this page. They'd be like, wait, what? We usually keep changing your avatar to try and make this look like it's a conversation. But yeah, that, 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 that sort of thing just, just I, that really tickles me. I like that. But let me ask you a question about something you said a few minutes ago. So... So you say that the scale, basically, the number of people that you address, um, that you address or that addresses you, yeah. changes what exactly? The opportunity for communication, the kind of message that can go back and forth. Um, yeah. I, I, w- I would say, like, when you were saying that, like, you know, the pedestal thing, I think the pedestal thing only only ever worked because there was some somebody in between. There was yeah, sort yeah. Of it was mediated absolutely. Yeah, middle, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was yeah, mediated, yeah. and and since since the 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 mediators are not interested, 
and for a reason, <laughs> yeah. in in artists that don't make enough money so that a cut would actually make you richer. Yeah. Which, I mean, there's something else we need to talk about this because it happened <laughs> with crowdfunding platforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, you, but, you know, that's, I think that's, that's the reason, um, why we have, we are facing this, um, situation we're in right now. And like, like, tell me more about this. What do you think? What is, what is like the, uh, what would be the number, say, of people? As, as subscribers on Bandcamp, where it would become difficult, you said five thousand, but yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's it's a lot lower than that. I think that I think because I, I think a lot is to do mm -hmm. with a lot is to do with the degree of engagement, and I think that if we go back to Kevin Kelly's one thousand fans thing, which I guess was the first time we somebody put a number on what a, what what the minimum sustainable minimum viable audience was, and he said a thousand fans, uh, but actually there's a gradient because because I don't think anybody has a thousand fans and a hard wall around those thousand fans. And that what you have is a gradient of intensity. So you have a couple of people who are happy to give you loads of money and, and travel long distances to see you and buy everything you put out in the center. From This is the, the normal model. And then it goes right out to people who listen to you on, on uh, you know, a streaming platform and make pennies for you a year. But again, if there's enough of them, that becomes a part of your, your income. So it's not that there's a thousand people. It's that there's actually 20,000 people of whom 200 really care about what you're doing and, and it kind of trickles down from there. So within a subscriber community, you also have that. You have people who are, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure I have subscribers who spend almost no time listening to me at all. That actually what they're there for is a commitment to the model and a general like of, you know, kind of uh, a positive disposition towards me as a person. And so they're happy to support me being able to do what I do without feeling the need to listen to absolutely ridiculous amounts of of my music because the volume of music that's that's available there is now you know it's 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 usefully kind of at the point where nobody can know it all i don't know i i, I occasionally things will come on and i'll go wait what was that and i'll try and i'll be trying to remember what record it was from and i have no idea and it's like was that me have i released this do i know what it <laughs> You know, and I just yeah, I know because because exactly yeah, <laughs> I think I mean you're, this is in, particularly interesting talking to you about this because you're one of the few people uh, around who is is as prolific as I am as a recording artist, and I think we can maybe talk about that about the aesthetics of of the sort of no demo culture, the idea that everything everything is made to be listened to. I think that's a really interesting aspect of this, but but um, yeah, so there's like 117 albums or something that are out there, and there are 80 or 90 that you get the moment you sign up to the subscriber thing now i don't even know i've lost count um and so there but there were a bunch of people i think who who listen to almost none of it there are others who really like the early stuff <laughs> they're sort of you know it's sort of classic i like his early work before he sold out crowd <laughs> who who but who are still committed to it and that actually that the paying annually is gestural it's a gesture of goodwill towards me that they are still interested in what i'm doing even though they aren't uh you know, they're, they're not that interested in when the next record is coming out. And then there's a sort of a sliding scale up to people who the week after I've put out a new recording are like, that was great. When's the next one? And are genuinely waiting to see what I do. And within that, there are different tiers of relationship as well. There are people in there who have become really good friends. There are people in there who are actively supportive of the, the kind of the structures around my career they've helped me organize gigs they will 
you know, actively go out and try and tell, recruit other people to the cause. You know, there are people who, who respond to that. And then there are, there, are the, there are those whose interaction with it is is that they want to review it and give me the feedback. And whenever I, particularly when I request it, when I go, okay, you've had a couple of weeks to listen to the new recording. Anybody got any thoughts on it? They'll come in and they'll come in with very thoughtful readings of what's going on in it. And so I, and so obviously there's, there's, a, there's a, I could, you know, put together a value matrix of where all that stuff sits. But I think there's a point at which the scale of it could start to interfere. Because I think, I often think about scale as being like the way that, that, that in physics, bodies of a certain size have a certain gravitational pull. And a huge planet has a far stronger gravitational pull than a small one. And the bigger you get, the more gravity there is that's starting to interfere with the things that move into its orbit. And I think that as a bigger, that for me at the moment, I'm functioning on a level where I have very little pull with my audience. That the impetus to investigate it is mostly theirs. It's not that there is any, they have anything socially to gain by associating themselves with me. <laughs> it's not like, oh, I'm a Steve Lawson fan. And they go, oh, people go, oh, wow, you're amazing. I would like to sleep with you. You know, there, there is, it doesn't it doesn't have that kind of cachet. Sadly, you know, it would be fun to be in that position. But but you know, that, there there isn't really a kind of social impetus beyond the the kind of being in, included in this community, which is very flattened in terms of its hierarchy. And so, even the, down to the, the things like the fact that, that I don't have a second tier for it, like it's it's thirty pounds a year, and you're in, and you get everything. There's no version where I do vinyl or CDs or exclusive extra gigs or, or increased access because I don't I don't want it to feel like a I'm rewarding rich people with better options or b like this community isn't enough I kind of I, the, the the representation of enoughness within it of going actually or this is this is the ticket through the door but once you're in we're all just going to talk about it. we've all got all the music and you can you can engage with it on whatever level you want there is no there are no assumptions about what you need to do with this. And if you want to take the new album and listen to it 50 times, that's great. If you want to listen to some old stuff that you liked when you were 12, then that's also cool. If you want to talk to me about it, you can. If you want to ignore that side of things, that's also cool. I kind of want it to be a, 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 a space where people's decision to engage with it is actually part of how I understand what it means to them. Because there's this constant ref, kind of loop of of it's reception theory is kind of the, again back to the phd thing there was a, a, a theorist called stuart hall who looked at this in in the context of mass media and about how production in tv was a cycle because the, and the, they would make a show broadcast a show incorporate the public's response to it to make the next show and that there was this cycle and and yet that that was very much kind of instrumentalized and it was about making the audience happy you know, that your, your job is to, to engage a certain number of people in order to justify your space on screen. And because I own the space that's operating in, there's nobody else that I need to make happy. So actually, the degree to which I understand what I do with my understanding that I get from the audience is not, I need to do more of this in order to get more people, or I need to do more of this because then they'll love me more. It's, oh, okay, so that kind of stuff connects and that doesn't. Maybe I need to explain that better. Because I want to do that but I want to make sure that they understand it. So for example, another useful example, when I started using the Cuneo, is it on? there we go. <laughs> yeah. When I started playing, <laughs> playing percussion on the Cuneo and I play drums, like as, as Questlove describes it, like a drunk toddler, 
I mean, he's not he's not describing me. He was talking about that particular kind of sloppy neo soul drumming. I don't think Questlove has any opinions on my drumming, um, <laughs> much as I would love to think so. Um, but because I play like that, and a lot of my audience come from a very pristine kind of prog and electronica background, they're used to the aesthetics of conspicuous musicianship, which I think is there, there is a lot of that in my solo stuff. There was, there, you know, there are moments of that where you can go, ah, I'm listening to a guy be really clever with a bass. And when I start playing drums, there's none of that. It's a completely non-virtuosic engagement with rhythm. And so I then felt this huge burden of how to communicate that intention. How do I make it clear that this isn't that I'm bad at drums, it's that this is how I want the drums to sound. Mm -hmm. And the subscriber community afforded me space to explore that in a way that I never could have done if it was a purely public release. I would have I would have put it out and then kind of hidden in my hands while a torrent of abuse came from bass players going, you can't even play. That's rubbish. What are you doing? You don't even know what you're doing. Whereas in the other setting, I had people who listened to me for 15 years at the time that I started doing it, emailing me and saying, man, this is beautiful music, but the drums sound really off. What's going on? <laughs> And they weren't like going, I'm going to stop. There was no threat to stop listening to me. They weren't, they'd already paid for the music. So there wasn't any, they weren't holding me a hostage and going, I'm not buying this until I understand it. I'm not buying this until I like it. You need to change this. So I'll buy the next thing. These are people who've already committed to being financially supportive of what I do, which totally changes that relationship. It's not one where they have a power over me. I mean, they can choose to unsubscribe at a certain point and I'm okay with that. There's lots of good reasons why people would unsubscribe. <laughs> not least of all, I've got enough of your music. Thanks very much. Um, that's a perfectly good reason for somebody to stop. But what's lovely about it is when they come and go, come to me and say, I, I genuinely don't understand where this is coming from. They're doing it not to make me feel bad about it, but to say, can you explain it? And the assumption that I'm going to be willing to do that is a reasonable one for them in a way that it wouldn't have been for me as a kid. You know, if I'd heard, if, 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 when Wish came out by The Cure, I'd gone, this doesn't sound like disintegration. I need to phone Robert up and have a word with him about what's going on. Like, this Friday I'm in Love is a bit too pop, and I want to know why you don't still sound like Fascination Street. Like, that's I, not... I love, I love that record. <laughs> it's an amazing record, isn't it? It's just beautiful. <laughs> um, but, but, like, you know, changes in style. Or, or when, you know, if you, even, even at a smaller scale, if you think when Paradise Lost went from being a death metal band to being a kind of... Depeche Mode, heavy Depeche Mode kind of sounding electronica band. That that was a huge schism. And the only people talking about that and trying to make sense of it were journalists in between. So they had to, they got to do maybe four big interviews. They probably did Kerrang, Metal Hammer, maybe Sounds if it was still around when they did that. You know, there was like the, the, the amount of, of large scale press they could have generated for that was a small number of interviews in which there was no right to reply from how, what the audience would have made of that. So they got to declare a set of intentions. They could write a manifesto and then try and present that through interviews. But they didn't get to actually go to the audience and go, how are you doing with this? You know, maybe at the merch table. Again, we're back to, you know, that, that as this sort of amazing point of transaction between artists and audiences. Um, and, uh, but, but they didn't get to have that conversation. And so I think about, you know, the, the, the degree of freedom that you and I have to to do that and to present to our audience, you know, kind of new ways of doing what we do and saying to them, it's okay if you don't get it. 
there'll be there'll be more stuff along that you like in a minute. But indulge <laughs> me. Let me let me experiment with this. That mm. back to I think you know I think the way you described it earlier on about the the fact that you know we look at things as being there's a hardship in 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 making music and you go yeah but there's also a, an affordance for totally different ways of thinking about what it is to be an artist and we're not stuck in that funnel in that you know because if you think about the things that were seen as radical when when we were young the kind of tiny changes that bands would make and then they would you know and they would be in interviews going oh well we feel like you know we've made quite some quite major changes to what we do i remember reading a, an interview with a couple of the members of Cannibal Corpse, who are, you know, lovely guys, good friends. I really like the music. But I remember they put out a record a few years ago where they were, like, they were saying, you know, we've really kind of gone out there and we've, we've in, we've, we're including a lot more kind of thrashy elements in here. And I was like, I'm a fan and really I can't hear much of a change here at all. This sounds like a really great Cannibal Corpse record. But they're listening to kick patterns and going, well, yeah, but that's a real kind of Slayer kick pattern. That's not what you would happen on a death metal record. And these riffs are much more tonal than they are, you know. And I'm going, fine. You know, they, they, they're feeling like they need to explain moving 2% in either direction. And, you know, artists have a completely different resolution to what they, what they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. a slight change may appear like something major, but yeah, I yeah. agree. And, I, and, 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 and interesting, that, I mean, and I, and I felt that as well. I felt like when I, when I added in kind of piano and, and drums using the cuneo, because I'd been solo bass Steve for so long, that I thought that there was going to be a pushback just in me, terms of me doing that. And it wasn't. The, the, the reaction to it was about the aesthetics of the music and about that kind of, you know, a handful of people going, I don't really get the drums. I've still got a couple of guys who, you know, who've been listeners to what I do for 20 years who are still like, you know what, I kind of, I still feel like I'm tolerating the drums. Every now and again, there'll be something that I really like, but at the moment, it's still not my bag. But none of them have ever said, you need to stop doing it. In fact, at least two of them. You know, the... I've said, I've the said, funny thing is that I still, I still remember, I, st I still remember hearing um, one of your albums that had the drums on it, and I was uh, surprised as well. Yeah, it was, I but like the way that that I, you know, the way that it sounded to me was like part of the texture. Hmm. Like that's how I felt it. Right? It was, it it never kind of tried to be anything in particular, if you know what I mean. Like yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It was just music, right? You know, yeah, yeah, and, and that was the thing. I, when I brought it in, it wasn't like now I need to do rock stuff. I'm bringing drums in because I want to get heavier, or I'm bringing drums in because I want it to be this. It allowed me to use elements of hip hop in particular, which is a big love of mine, but also one that, as a kind of middle class white English guy, I'm aware of the semiotics of drawing on hip hop, and so it gets mangled in with everything else. And like you say, it becomes part of that texture. And mm -hmm. when I first started doing it, this is really interesting that I got the Cuneo in sometime in mid. 2015 and i did a tour at the end of 2015 with jonas helborg mm -hmm. and who's an extraordinary thinker um i i am I, I have an awful lot of time for jonas complicated character but but an amazing thinker about music and he said after one of the gigs he said he said i don't know why you're using such normal sounds when your bass sound is so mystical And it was such, I don't know, such, such, you described the sounds as obvious, I think was what he said about the, the, the song. And I was, I was using a kind of fairly straight up piano sound and unprocessed drums at the time. And it was really useful, again, to like get that level of feedback and, and to then go, hang on a minute, I need to give as much attention to this stuff as I do to the bass sound. I don't get, I can't get away with this just being like a kind of MIDI add-on to what I'm doing. I need to actually think about 
what these sounds bring in the same way that I would sit and play with a reverb setting for an hour. I need to do the same with the snare sound. And I need to do the same with, with the kind of, you know, the, the sound stage that the drums sit within. And the piano needs to be, if it's going to be a piano, it needs to be a piano that is chosen because it's the best possible piano sound, not just because it's the sample that's present, you know, in whatever software I'm using. And that, that intervention was a hugely significant one. I'm, you know, I've still, I'll, I'll turn on my gear and, and, and occasionally I'll just have this moment of being grateful to Jonas for, for his, his input in there. Because it's a thing that I've recognized in a lot of other music made by bass players in particular, is that often the bass sound is amazing and everything else is crap. And the assumption is, oh, you only want to hear the bass anyway. Like, you know, you get these really crappy MIDI piano sounds and like poorly recorded drums in somebody's bedroom. And then this bass that sounds like the voice of God in the middle of it. And you're like, really? <laughs> was that a good, was that a good production decision? I, I think, I think you've, you've put your energies where they weren't really needed. Um, and I don't, I don't ever want to do that. And I think there's a couple of, the, maybe I'll remix them at some point, but there's a couple of the, the early things I did with the drums and keys that definitely have that schism. They have the kind of very naturalistic, but actually quite obvious drum sound. And mm. then this mystical bass sound. I think that's a lovely term. I love the idea of being mystical. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I, and, and so, so that, that, the aesthetics of that evolved over time. But aside from Jonas's intervention, the audience response, and the, particularly the subscriber community, because all of that happened around the same time, that the first subscriber release, I think, was the first thing I ever put Cuneo on. I think I put out an album called Closing In, which was the, a subscriber-only record before the first album that I did that had all of that nonsense on it. And that was the first time I ever used it. There's a track at the end of it, and it has this kind of, uh, it's almost like a kind of broken glass effect that I got out of, I can't remember what it was in, Ableton maybe? Mm -hmm. Really lovely kind of icy keyboard patch that I used on a thing, and that's on there. And that's the first time I'd ever used it recording-wise. And again, I was able to sort of gauge the response from a community. And I think then this is another kind of key thing, and I'd be interested to know the degree to which you feel this. Um, that it felt like a community that actually cared about what I was doing. It didn't feel like I was throwing it into a hostile commercial space where it was going to be judged based on how many copies it sold. Like, like people were going to punish me by choosing not to, not to buy it and not to listen to it. Instead, I was putting it into a community that already paid for it to exist and already gave a shit about what I was doing. And so I could put it in there knowing that if they didn't like it, they weren't going to hate me for it. And that we could have that ongoing conversation about the context within which it existed and why I'd made those decisions. and crucially that they would defer judgment until that conversation had taken place so they weren't going to dismiss the work until they'd come back with a bunch of questions because there was this thing this is this is another one of the the, the lovely things that has kind of come in through the phd a phrase from a friend of mine in the states where he talks about about expanding the space of the talk aboutable which is mm -hmm. a lovely phrase the space of the talk aboutable mm -hmm. and so because mm -hmm. i'm releasing music into the space of the talk aboutable the work expands to include the conversation so that the work is understood not just through the lens of listening but through the lens of discussion and cognition and framing and all that other stuff so do you do you feel like your your community cares about you do you experience that you know i, I think it's about the expectation as we were saying uh, about the expectation of your audience right so if if the audience sees you as primarily somebody who is experiments with music or with sounds yeah then there is there are no grounds to um well you could say okay i don't like that sound that's one way of 
judging what you do, right? Just saying, mm. I don't like that sound, or like what, what Jonas was saying. But that does not mean that you're not, not successful in your experimentation. And actually, the feedback, if somebody says, I don't like that sound, that is what you want, sort of want to elicit with your experiment, right? You kind yeah. of want that feedback. You need that feedback because, because, I, and I, maybe this is, well, it's maybe true for you as well. Like, I don't see myself as the, the guy who knows everything, right? Like, yeah. no. I, I, I'm part of, I'm part of a, a community. And as you say, like the Bandcamp community, like the subscribers, mm -hmm. for example, you kind of like can count somehow can count of them to, to be part of your organism. Mm. That's how I kind of like see it. Right. So, and, and, and I think we should always, um, be, oh, at least be open to keep experimenting. Yeah. 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 No, no, I think I think I think what I like about that is it's a really interesting contrast with the definition of experiment experimental music that that Derek Bailey uses because Derek used to talk about he would say there's no such thing as experimental music because the experimenting has already happened before you perform that actually the performance mm -hmm. itself is is a manifestation of something that has already been experimented and you're just playing and uh, whereas I think actually what you're describing is an experiment in the sense that everything we do is an iteration along a journey rather than about a, a finished product. The, the process. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, so that all the, what, what you and I are doing is documenting a process and there are all yeah. these landmarks along that process. And that there is the invitation to the audience to engage with that as a body of work or to insert themselves anywhere in it and go, Oh, I like that one. So they can, they can commodify it. They can, they can turn it back into a product rather than an episode. And go, well, actually, I want to listen to that album a lot. I really like that record you did in 2015. And that's the one I'm going to dig into. Or they can treat it as a longer narrative arc and go, actually, I really love the way that Marcus's music developed from those early records to what he's doing now. I like what happened when he joined the Stickman and suddenly, you know, there was a, that comes in vocabulary became much more apparent in his playing or whatever, you know, that they, that they learn yeah. about your story through yes. the documentation of it as recordings. And I think that for me, that the idea that, that every album is a chapter, uh, that actually seeing the release mechanism as more podcast-like than like a kind of traditional album release model has been absolutely essential to me being able to kind of do that and with each album to talk about to that, to that audience, uh, to be able to talk to them about how and why it exists and even why I chose to release it. Because I think, again, once, once you're in a state where there is an abundance of music. Everything exists not because I need to release a record this month, but because this deserves to be released. And that, that again, changes the listener experience. Because if I put out an album once a year, then that album might be, might exist because I needed to put an album out. If I put out 12 albums a year to an audience that I've promised three albums to, then those other nine records exist because I felt that they were absolutely worthwhile. And that there is an assumption from the audience that this stuff is worth engaging with because who the hell wants to put out nine albums of bullshit around three great albums when you could just put three great albums out and everybody will be happy with that. Like there's no, there's li literally no impetus for me to release bad music at all because of that frame that by pursuing a model where what I'm actually trying to foster in the audience, the one bit of manipulation in this is I want them to be in a space where they get to be grateful for the music 
rather than to feel like a transaction has taken place where they've paid a unit cost for it. That when they give me £30 a year, I want the amount of music they get to be something they go, wow, this is great. Thank you. That's really kind of you. And I don't want them to pay. I don't want them to feel obliged to pay more for it. It's not about the fact that, that I kind of expect them to give me extra. Although the lovely thing is that, again, because of Bandcamp's, you know, X amount or more model, there are people who go, actually, I get more out of this and I want to express that financially. That's fantastic. And, you know, that, that has a significant impact on my annual kind of, you know, my ability to pay rent. <laughs> but but it's not it's not implicit or explicit within the work the, the, the idea that I, that I make more than the, the the kind of baseline offering is about saying you've made this possible that the, the community at large makes that as a financial framework as a relational framework as a space in which to, as a space of possibles in which to experiment uh, this community has made it possible for me to make this amount of work and part of the gratitude my gratitude my expression of gratitude is to release it and their, and their response is to then go wow this is great where does all this come from and i occasionally do get people going but how how do you maintain that level of consistency mm-hmm. and it's like and, and which is a beautiful question to be asked to be told to be to be asked how are you that good like that's a really, really what is lovely your what, thing. What, what is what is your answer what is your answer to that question um uh, the the freedom affords me the, the, the creative freedom that the, the community affords me means that I'm not trying to second guess what an audience would want, which is where most people's mistakes come from. Most people who make bad music do it because they assume that somebody will like that bad music, not because they do. Very few people who make music for themselves make bad music. <laughs> they might make music I don't like, but, that, but, but mm-hmm. it, because it, they have a, a fixed and constantly referable benchmark for what it is they're trying to do which is their own taste that they that ends up hopefully that, that it's possible to kind of meet that and to go yeah i really like this and you know years down the line you might appraise it differently but that's okay hindsight's hindsight's a wonderful thing but i find that because i have that community because i i i get to do the things that i care about and i make the records that i want to have exist in the world i don't know if you saw yesterday i put a quote from chris morris the British kind of filmmaker and, and TV maker. And he just said, he said, I see an awful lot of work that doesn't need to exist. And he said, he said, if, if it doesn't, if it doesn't need to be there, I don't, I won't make it. Something like that. And I was like, th- I mean, and, and a couple of people in the comments started unpacking the concept of need. And I was like, yeah, the need might be your own, but I get to make what yeah. I, the, the music I make is music that doesn't exist in the world, but I think should. <laughs> That's basically the, the gist of it. It's like, it's like, what is it that doesn't currently exist that I think, you know, would be a good thing to have in existence? And I spend, mm-hmm. I spend quite a lot of time listening to my own music because, again, I think, again, I'm very interested to know how this works for you. As an improviser who is constantly refining my signal chain so that I can automate, you know, so that the release process is a matter of, of taking a recording and just going, okay, I can just compress it slightly and EQ it in order to kind of meet the sonic expectations of a, of a listening audience. But I, it takes me 20 minutes to, to master an album and I can put it out. Mm-hmm. The, the, where was I going with that? Uh, I, had a, I had a really solid point. And it's, it's vanished. What was I talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah, the, 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 the needs to exist. Yeah, yeah. So I can, you know, I can make a thing and, uh, and then listen to it and, just do, and, and decide 
pretty much immediately whether I think it, it has value and purpose within the community. And then I'll just put it out. And I quite often write a thing about it. Music is often accompanied by an essay. Through the pandemic, the music was a responses to very specific things that were going on. That sometimes I would need calming music because the, you know, the news of the day was ridiculous. And I would mm-hmm. try and kind of make something kind of calming. And then other times it would be like, I sort of need to, I can't, I don't have words for this unease that's going on, but I'm going to turn it into music that feels like that. And the response again was, was sometimes from people going, actually, I am already feeling really uneasy. So I didn't really need that. <laughs> Thanks. You've made me feel worse. <laughs> and other times it was people going, nothing else has expressed how I feel as well as this music did. Which is, an, mm-hmm. you know, what a gift that is from an audience to say, thank you for putting into music the things that none of us can put into words. So there is yeah, that, 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 you know, it's a, yeah, that's that's a, the, you know, you know, those words I'm, I'm hearing quite a bit, like that there is, there is something about what I do that gives people some sort of, and I don't really know which word to use, comfort. Which mm. is kind of like a strange word to use, I find, because the connotations can be also negative, right? Somehow. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But but I I I find that there is like just something that um, is in the air, or that can be in the air, and if I allow myself to act as the uh, antenna, yeah, um, it will it will you know it will just come out. And yeah. I have to say, like I had some 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 um, sad days where I felt like where I had where I had time to record, where I felt like I would like to, and I, I where I know or I knew I would really play something outstanding today. Mm. Yeah, but then I didn't do it. I didn't do it because I felt like oh, it would be it would be too much. There's already enough of that out there that i did even right yeah, like yeah, not yeah. even somebody else yeah and you know at some at, at some point when i was really <clears throat> you know i got into like uh, sylvian and blah 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 in 89 or something yeah, like yeah. a long time ago and like once once you have discovered that music like at some point you don't have and i'm just using this word lightly but you don't have any need anymore for beautiful or melancholic music yeah, because yeah, yeah. there's already this 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 absolute like perfect statement of music that yeah. kind of like actually fills that void let's say yeah and then other other musicians other bands started kind of being inspired by that music and somehow i couldn't for some reason i couldn't listen to that music anymore like yeah. i was not interested in doing beautiful music right and so right. somehow i i see i i, I see that same thing that same feedback cycle happen onto my my own music and my own mm. and and i i really i really don't feel good about it that i sometimes decide to not do the work you know to not follow through um but but i think you 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 know just the last thing here, i think what you what you're saying is so inspirational to me because you basically say okay i have this community here on Bandcamp, where I can say, okay, it's only for the people that subscribe, and 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 you just put it out there, and you there's no need for you to even have these thoughts, right? Mm. You just do what you do, and if you think it's worthwhile, you put it out. And as you say, it takes twenty minutes to master, yeah. right? So, uh, and and that's that's a similar situation I'm in, like yeah, yeah, and I think and I think it allows you to 
I mean, I th- I th- that's <clears> such an interesting observation because it's such an important one. There's a cu- there's two or three things in there that I need to try and pull together because I so I think that that I do get to revisit the same space with my subscriber community in a way that I never could publicly. I couldn't make two works that were as similar as some of the things that I've done recently, which are visiting the same space from slightly different angles. And that because I can present that to the, to the, the subscribers and go, do you want to compare these? Do you have a favorite? Is there something in here that actually connects with you? You know, that you can't do that with a buying audience. You can't go, I need you to buy both of these albums because otherwise you're not going to get it. And they're going to go, no, fuck off. I just, <laughs> I just, you know, stop telling me what to buy. You idiot. Like that because what you're doing is you're making meaning through within, through the fact that everybody's in through the door already. So they're there because mm-hmm. they care. They're there because they're interested. They're curious about what you do, whatever their motivation is for giving you 30 pounds a year. It's like, which is a, you know, it's a tiny amount of money when you think about the volume of work that's involved. So that's, mm-hmm. I can't, I, and I sort of was, uh, you know, and that's the thing, you know, you can consider and you think, well, okay, how, how, how cheap can I make this where the value of it is still apparent? But I, but also I don't make it a thing for obsessives. I don't have like, you know, cause if I made it a hundred pounds a year, there's still a bunch of people that will pay it, but I would be, I would just be them. And it would just be this small handful of people who are like, who would get in order to justify it in their own heads would get even more obsessed with it. And I think that's not, I don't, think that's a healthy thing. I don't think my, I don't think I deserve that. Um, but you know, the, the way that I've, I've solved that for me is that there, there are two, two tiers, like there's 50 and 80 or something yeah, that yeah. I do on Bandcamp, but I very specifically state, I have to check that again, but I think I do, <laughs> that there's no difference. Like yeah, they yeah. don't get anything more. Ah, nice. it's, it's just their personal choice to, to, to kind of like admit that they want to, that they want to give more. So it's, it's, I- it's like. It's a different psychological take on the, you know, you can pay more if you like. You I, I, I think that I think that that's genius because I think often people are, and, I, and this is this is from feedback that I've had from listeners. People are really uncomfortable with being left to pay what they want because because I've had people say to me, I couldn't possibly afford to pay you what this is worth. Like like I if I had a hundred, mm-hmm. I've had a spare hundred pounds, I would give you it for this album, and it's like, well, that's really lovely. You don't need to. And they go, yeah, yeah, but you've left a space where that's what I'm meant to do. Like, like if you're asking me to express what I think this is worth, I can't afford to. So give me a price and tell me what I need to give you in order to make it justify this. And I think that, but, but because because mine is left at you know, thirty quid or more, it's like that is wide open. And actually, that's probably more problematic for people than what you're doing, where you've just gone. Here's a higher tier. If you if that makes sense to you, feel free to just contribute to that level. And if at the end of the year you want to step down, that's cool as well. You know, if you you know if your finances change, you're not going to lose out on a bunch of music because of it. Um, I think that's really clever. I might have to consider that. What's the flu- fluctuation like in terms of uh, subscribers? So this you? is the other thing that I'm I'm amazed at how few I lost to the pandemic. Like I genuinely thought that it was going to decimate because of people's economics kind of crashing. But what I did a few times was I had a bunch of, I had a a number of people who actually messaged me and said, I'm going to have to unsubscribe at least for a while because I've lost my job, because I've been furloughed, I haven't got any money because, and now, you know, gas bills and electric bills and all that kind of nonsense going through the roof. And what I've taken to doing is emailing people, particularly if they've been around for a while and saying, you know what, subscribe, I'll refund it. I'd much rather you stayed in the community 
And then at a point in the future when you can afford to, I'll stop refunding it. <laughs> you, you know, but that, but actually, I'd just rather you were there. I don't want to make it like it's not costing me anything for you to have this music. You've already, I can see exactly how much money they've given me. So if I want to make it about that, I can go, yeah, you've given me 150 pounds over the last five years. Like that, that when we start thinking about the, the, you know, if there's a sort of Excel spreadsheet of fandom, somebody who's given me 150 quid is somebody who is, is committed to my work and cares about it on whatever level. Like in the old, in old money, those people were incredibly rare and I have a lot of them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if somebody's done that, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to suddenly say, no, you can fuck off. You're not getting any new music. Go and live in your hovel and turn your heating off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, yeah, yeah. for God's sake, if I can help you, you've been a meaningful part of this community for however long. And, and I just want to, you know, I, I, I want to help you just continue to be a part of that if you want to be. If this is you apologizing because actually you've got less interest in the music than you thought you had, that's absolutely fine. Feel free to bail. What, if you're uncomfortable with this, you can go. I don't want to place any obligation on you. But if you want to stay, I'm more than happy just to refund the money once, you've, once, it, once it ticks over. And, uh, yeah, you know, you know, that's, that's one, one of the, um, little things that I'm still missing on Bandcamp is to even to, to that you, it would be great if I could gift memberships to people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's a few people I would want to do that with. I mean, I mean, apart from anything else, it'd be nice to be able to do it for a couple of journalists, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, or having said that, there, I, there are a number of journalists who subscribe to me on Bandcamp and that is that feels almost like the ultimate generosity. Like when somebody who gets an endless amount of free music and has almost no time to consume the nonsense that I put out chooses to actually give me £30 a year for a bunch of music that they would normally expect to get for free. I'm like, wow, that's extraordinary. That's a really, you know, that's such a kind thing for somebody to do. But I would love to be able to, you know, to, to gift them. I'd love to be able to kind of do like, like one-off discounts and go, okay, here's 50% off voucher for you because your broker shit and i don't you know i i get that you want to support what i'm doing but i also don't want to take money off you that you need to spend on your gas bill that's just three times as much as it was last month so yeah the, you know this there's there's uh, but yeah so my way around that has just been to, been to offer to refund it um but yeah the, but there's been very few of those you know i kind of i think i peaked at around 300 subscribers um which was you know it's the hilarious thing is 300 subscribers is the equivalent it's a lot it's the, a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's the equivalent of, of almost two and a half million streams a year on Banker, on uh, Spotify. <laughs> like I'd have to be I'd have to be the world's biggest solo bass player. Like I've you know, <laughs> I'd have to be I'd have to be, you know, I, uh, Stu Ham or Victor Wooten or somebody is probably making that kind of that sort of stream level, you know. Like I would have had to have had a record deal for thirty years and a bunch of coverage in the mainstream press to to reach that. So to be able to make that kind of money off a community that cares and not have the bullshit that I would get from that many people listening to me on Spotify. Because that's the thing is I don't want that mm. audience. I don't want a bunch of people finding mm. me on Spotify and then going, oh, you know, you should be doing this. You should be, why are you doing that? Why can't I get all your music on here? Why is it behind a paywall? Like, go away. Mm. I don't need your, your you know, if I get that you don't understand it. That's fine. But don't dump that on me. Mm. Instead, I've got this community that make it sustainable. And I think this is the thing is, is, is you know, is, is it viable? Is it sustainable? As the amount of time that I have to spend making that music pays for itself. I don't, I can't live off just the subscription. I think it would be a bit weird if I could. Um, it would be nice. You know, it'd be, that'd be a nice place to be. It'd be a nice problem to have. But alongside 
everything else, teaching, and I still have you know a significant number of individual album sales because there are people who I've spoken to who are just like, I can't deal with the volume of it. I don't need the subscription because I think it would, I would feel like I ought to listen to it all. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I go, it's great. You, I'm more than happy for you to do whatever you want to do with it. And so, you know, I, I put things out and people will just buy them and pay more than they need to for them and, you know, kind of enjoy that. But, um, yeah, the, the fluctuation, it kind of, it's dropped to like 280 now, which is the lowest it's been in, in ages. So, yeah, you know, less than less than 10% fall off across across the, the you know, greatest economic crisis to hit Britain in, in, since the war. It's like it's it, that's yeah, quite... for me. It's samey. It's like five percent is the fluctuation. And what I've what I've also found is that almost everybody who unsubscribes, like eighty percent of the people who unsubscribe, resubscribe at a certain point. That people people don't drift far from the community. Um, yeah, I know. I was getting getting emails at the beginning of the pandemic where people cancel right the subscription and and some of them returned already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's incredible. I've had I've had quite a few like that, and it's and it, it because I think again because it's a generous model. It's not a model that's about you know it's not a grasping model. It's not about saying I'm trying to get as much money off you as I can. If you give me this, I'll give you this. It's not transactional in that way. I mean, it is a transaction no, because no. there's music at the end of it, but it's also an invitation to be a part of of something bigger. And and also I think I think that most people understand that they support you know they they support the artistic endeavor mm. and and of the artistic endeavor of that particular person right so it's yeah, yeah. it's not really about the prod about product no no and it's, I, anymore no it's funny i do get, i do get people who apologize for not having they, you know their subscribers who go oh, i haven't i'm not up to date with it i haven't listened to the last two or three and i'm like it's still there it's yours it's not going to go mm. away it's not like it's not like it's a limited Netflix release where it's there for six months and then I'm going to delete it. It's like, it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yeah, I think that you're very good with words and like the, um, the little articles that you're writing on your website, they are, um, mostly very, very good. And, uh, I would encourage people to go to your website to actually check those out because like when, when Bandcamp was, uh, was bought recently, uh, you were one of the, like your, your article was one of the best. I have to say, um, very, very good. Um, like, because the, the way that you, uh, your, your depth of insight is, um, certainly not one sided. And, and I think that is just incredible. Uh, so that has been like three weeks now, four weeks or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think we're, I think we're sort of out of the so morning did, period now. Yeah. Did did you notice that yesterday or the day before yesterday they started putting out these new? Uh, you had to agree again to the to the new uh, rules and stuff. Have oh, you seen that already? I haven't. I haven't had that. I haven't had that. I've had. I had. I've, I've had that. I've had that yesterday. Oh, that'll be interesting. That'll be interesting to see. Uh, 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 yeah, change in terms of service. Um, I mean, I, I imagine that that's. Mm-hmm. That I I I think they're probably going to have to do that just because corporate structure is different, and so and also. Mm-hmm. The fact that there are going to be extra servers that now have access to your data, that, that Epic are going to, mm-hmm. you know, for obvious reasons, if they're actually embedding Bandcamp stuff across Epic's kind of games platforms, then they're going to need permission to do that. So I, I kind of yeah. get that. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm uh, you know, I think it's sad. I think, but I think it's sad because 
it represented a different way of doing things. Um, and I think on a, on a functional, practical level, it, it will hope for, I think their intention is for it to continue as it is. I think, you know, I, don't, I think they're fundamentally good people behind it. I've seen a few people who've reacted incredibly badly towards, you know, in terms of their assumptions about malicious intent from the people behind it, mm-hmm. assuming that mm-hmm. they're being greedy or whatever. And there was, they, I know that they've had so many opportunities to be greedy before and they haven't. Yeah. That this is, yeah. there is a reason why they went for this and none of the other offers. That when, when, when Ethan wrote about, you know, kind of having had other offers from within the music industries, I, I, you know, I, in as in as much as I'm, you know, I've had conversations with people at Bandcamp about that. I know they've had offers, and I know they've had, you know, attempts at people kind of getting hold of of stuff, and they've always resisted. And there's a reason why they went for this, and I don't think it's just I don't think it's just money. I think I think it's about them there being something that they can do on a scale that will make it possible. I think they have a number of problems that they've always had. One of which being that they can't sell things through the the Apple uh the iphone app because of because mm-hmm. if you did sell music in an iphone app then then apple take 30 percent of that and instead of selling us down mm-hmm. the line and saying well okay anything you sell on, a, on an apple phone is 30 percent less because apple are taking the money instead of doing that they've they've taken a principled stand all the way along and said no we're not going to do that so mm-hmm. they've always needed some kind of partner to start to challenge that epic have been one of the people who've been trying to take take on Apple in a kind of antitrust lawsuit way, they've got you know billions more to spend on that kind of thing. So I think there are there are strategic aspects of this that make perfect sense. Um, mm-hmm. But it is it is sad. It is you know we loved our little our little corner of independent fluffiness in the you know that that there was there's been a kind of I saw a couple of takes that were about the suggestion that this happened because the the tiny amount of VC money that is in Bandcamp that those VCs needed their payout. Again, I guess it's possible. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not party to their accounts. I don't, I'm not, I don't work for them. Um, but my understanding is that the, that the amount of VC money in Bank Up was absolutely minuscule, and that if that was the only problem, they could, they could have bought it out. They could have just, you mm-hmm. know, that they, that, that, that if that, if if that was the only thing they needed to, to do, they could have just bought out the the, the extraneous stock. Um, that's my assumption. Again, I, like I'm not, I, I can't. That that that, that, that didn't strike trying, me as a reasonable one. Yeah, I'm trying not to to make any assumptions about exactly. the future. It, for me, it's just about like being uh, descriptive about the current state of affairs. Exactly right, and and that's that's really what is important. And and like I have to admit that about two years ago, um, I noticed a few changes that were happening under the hood, so to say, mm. in in Bandcamp. Where I like I did hear some alarm alarm in my head going off, and it was like small things, like for example, example suddenly you couldn't put YouTube links into the description anymore. Yeah, uh, stuff like that, or that I I had I had forgotten to make a, a track streamable on the album, and I released it, and the uh, email didn't go out to the subscriber to the. Ah. To the people following me and like and so you only you only ever notice these things when you're making a mistake really or when you're trying you know yeah or you know i had a, had a habit of of posting uh because i started doing these albums that were recorded online right? yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So i recorded the zoom call put that on youtube 
And so people could actually download the album and watch the creation yeah, of the yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So it was, and that it wasn't possible anymore to put the YouTube link in. And 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 then um, and so again, like I'm not I'm not judging because I also understand why you want to kind of like keep people I think, within the system. Um, I think I think also I think that they that they've yeah I mean I think part of that was was that they were um, the, so there were a number of 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 things that Bandcamp are dealing with all the time. And one of which is what happens at the fringes of Bandcamp. And so that, that there are certain, that there are no doubt a significant number of people who are constantly trying to upload copywritten content to Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it may well be that there's a way of, that, that one of the things that spammers are doing is doing that and then trying to link out to affiliate links via whatever. Yeah. And that, yeah. that, that it could be kind of got caught up in that. Um, yeah. But it could just be that, you know, as they've said about putting video uh, rather than when they started doing video hosting on their via pro accounts, um, that they said at the time that it was, you know, it was just like they didn't want adverts popping up on the screen. And the problem with, with using YouTube as an alternative to, to self-hosting was that you mm -hmm. suddenly have within the Bandcamp experience, the, the thing of clicking out to watch a video of a song. And suddenly you're bombarded with YouTube's adverts and Google is suddenly making money off it. So I think there's part of that that was about uh, uh, perhaps slightly heavy handed attempt to steer the community towards things being m more centralized more around Bandcamp. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. The streaming thing is a bit odd. The, 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 the email not going out. That's kind of. Mm hmm. That's that's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. yeah that's, that that was that was shocking. I was I was actually uh, not happy about that. Did you did you did you contact them? Did you email, because, did you email them? No. Because yeah, it's, it sounds like, it sounds like it'd be worth having a chat with somebody about that. I mean, again, this is I, I, because I've got friends who work there. I tend to sort this stuff out via direct message, which is incredibly lazy of me, rather than actually emailing a support friend. <laughs> and my friend Ben, who works there, is probably sick of me sending him DMs going. Because especially with the PhD <laughs> happening as well, I'm constantly saying, can you tell me what, what date this page was set up on? And he's like, you know, he hasn't told me to piss off yet, but it would be perfectly reasonable for him to say, I'm not your personal <laughs> research assistant. I actually have a job to do. Go away. Um, yeah. yeah. So what, what about Bandcamp Fridays then? What, what's your take on those? Again, I, I mean, I, I've seen so many people start getting angry about it. And I think that the, the weird thing about it is, that it was one of those absolute win-wins that, that the very first one, I think Bandcamp were probably taken aback slightly by how successful it was. And, you know, suddenly they've got an entire day when they have their biggest number of support calls ever and nobody's getting paid for doing them because, you know, like they're not actually making any money. But Bandcamp's presence within the music ecosystem grew massively. Like as a result, I think Bandcamp did incredibly well out of it. The fact that they're now on, whatever that you know is it 200 million a year or something they're making they're paying out to artists it's absolutely extraordinary kind of level of growth and backup fridays is a key part of that um so i i think i think it's a thing that that worked for them as a business i don't think it was they weren't doing themselves any harm you know again the, the analysis has always been people trying to find an ulterior motive i think they genuinely wanted mm. wanted to just help us out i think it was a fairly simple thing they were like mm. well, we can do this And th mm -hmm. again, the messaging is really obvious because Spotify can't do that. So it's you know, it's it, there's a bit of a, you know, uh, to, to anybody else who isn't in a position to help that way. But it was genuine. You know, I think it was great. I think that you know, again, there's been complaints from people saying, well, all of a sudden, big bands and labels have started to put out special releases for Bandcamp Friday, and it swamps it, so the little little artists can't do it. 
but again, we come back to this thing of of my audience is closed. I'm not I'm not trying to get you know there is no there is no the audience beyond my audience. It's not like I need to suddenly like it's not like Gang of Four putting out vinyl is going to suddenly stop me from being able to connect with people who like what I do. It's not even like Steve Roach doing it would affect what I do. Like it's like you know the the people who know what I do, I can reach them fairly easily. The bombardment with with emails on on every morning, every Friday morning, you know, whenever they do it, is a bit of a pain. But you just delete, you know, group delete them all and or, or bookmark them and come back to them. Mm-hmm. So again, I I think it was just it's just a really good thing. I think all good things get ruined beyond scale, and I think this is we're coming back to the thing about about the scale of a community that all of Bandcamp's problems as well as all of its possibilities come from scale. Mm-hmm. And part of what we don't like, you know, the, the bit that jars with you and I is that in order to function at the scale that they now exist at, there are changes that need to happen. And to continue to do that without it getting clunky and creaky, they needed a level of investment in the infrastructure to make that possible. And th- their decision was to go to Epic rather than to, you know, do it any other way. And I think, that's a bit weird but but i think i think i I don't i don't think there was any kind of machiavellian machiavellian strategy thing behind bandcamp fridays i think it was just Mm -hmm. an attempt to help should it stop i don't know you know i still see artists every time they do it paying their bills you know i still see people saying thanks i've been able to do this i on a on a friday when i if i put out a new album on a bandcamp friday i will normally get five or six new subscribers and maybe make anywhere up to about 200 pounds in direct sales. If I put out a new album on that day, I, it's not that's good. Wonderful. It's amazing. You know, and it's like, great. Yeah. Well, that's, that's my rent paid off a single day's sales yeah. and returns. And, you know, I, I think it very much depends on how people have been using Bandcamp before. So I think for some, for some artists, for some people, for some communication styles, or for somebody like you, who has, who has already built up uh, a following uh, of subscribers, um, it 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 could only help. I think it it and it did help. Also, I think for 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 people who have not been using Bandcamp very much, it was a motivator to get them to actually start using it, and it was good for them. I think yeah. that there is like a certain, and I I I'm, I have to say, unfortunately, I'm part of. Uh, that group, uh, where I had a constant stream of income by a bank yeah, yeah. and there was no there was no competition. Yeah, yeah. At least not the competition that you <laughs> yeah, could feel, feel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, and yeah. what it has turned into is okay. Everybody, look at me on that Friday, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, buy my new album or buy my music, and uh, that has been a little bit frustrating. I have to I have to admit. And um, and I think it's just like this this general and this is something that we we've been talking about for over an hour now, like like yeah, this yeah. this this competitive this competitive model that's that's old right that's kind of old for us yeah, yeah. we don't really want that in our lives, and um, and that's why I'm I I used to wonder I don't wonder that anymore if the um, the buyout let's say <laughs> was uh, was was the result of Bandcamp allowing competitive structures, right? So that's kind of just I just want to say that I don't yeah, know no, if it's no, true, I think, but I think, I think I think that that there's an interesting thing about about 
But there's a couple of things, interesting cultural things about Bandcamp and the way that it the way that it has worked. One of which is how slowly they introduce new things. That that they don't chuck out a bunch. It's not like they're kind of constantly iterating and putting out new ideas and beta versions of this and that. And and then you know we've constantly got a bleeding edge of stuff that doesn't quite work that's being fixed. They don't do that. They wait two years and suddenly there's a new thing. There'll be fan accounts. There'll be uh, uh, subscription things, which I got to use for a year before anybody else. There were three of us who got a year before they launched it. They were, so they did trial it, but they tried it with three artists. And I and I consulted with them on how it, how I wanted it to work. I'd spent the previous couple of Januaries talking to Ethan about that in California, um, which was great. But they did that, and then they did the same with vinyl. And you know, they they have these big launches when they put infrastructure in place. So I think that that when they start trying to scale those things up, they trial trial these things, but they trial them in a finished form. And it's basically it's not about will this work; it's just whether or not is whether or not it's going to be economically viable beyond the fact that it works. Um, but I think I think that Bandcamp has an affordance back to that concept for a number of different kinds of economic transactions. So the fact that you can have all of your work pay what you want and just, you know, it's basically a, a, a you're acknowledging that your audience, the economic disparity between the various members of your audience is such that any price point is going to be meaningless. So you've got, well, I've got a bunch of kids who like it. They can download it for free. I've got a bunch of adults who like it, who understand that the shit needs to be paid for. They're going to give me some money so I can do that. Then there's the, the people who charge you know, seven, eight, nine, ten pounds an album, who are basically treating it like downloadable CDs. Um, it's not a model that really makes much sense to me. Much much sense to me, largely because of my own the way I engage with Bandcamp, which is that anything under under five pounds, I'll buy without even thinking about. It. If somebody sends me a link to a thing that looks interesting, I'll buy it. If it's under a fiver, it's like yeah, yeah, I'll have that and I'll listen to it later. I don't listen to things first. If somebody's charging seven, eight, nine, ten pounds for it, I'm going to listen to it. And if I don't love it, I'm like. It's quite a lot of money, you know. And it's just pure, weirdly psychological. So I tell again, I don't, I don't think it's a moral, <laughs> it's not an ethical split. It's just, it's a functional one for me. And then there's the the the, the affordance of the the subscription platform, where suddenly it's like actually I can just use this infrastructure to create and manifest community, and I can charge whatever I want to be in that. I can include whatever I want within that. There are certain things about it that frustrate me. I wish that I could index all the video that I've uploaded. I wish that that was searchable. I'm really glad they've now put in post-specific links because for the longest time, there wasn't any way of linking to a particular post. So now I can, if I want to link to a video, if I want to go, oh, three years ago, I released this. I can do the work of scrolling back through God knows how many pages of, of the subscriber feed and go, okay, here's the video. And I can, I don't have to upload it again. I can just relink to it. So that's a good thing. Um, but I wish there was a better way of presenting that. I wish there was like a, you know, a carousel of video that people could kind of flick through. Um, but I think that they were thinking of it as a way, as like people talking to camera almost like, you know, like a video podcast approach, it, which is also kind of borne out by the fact that you can't upload audio as a kind of attachment within a message like that. No, it's like if you're doing audio, that's a record. You know, so, so there are these, there are these really interesting cultural assumptions that Bank have made and they are have always been, there's always been a desire to funnel people towards what they see as the optimum use case. It's not an open platform in that way at all. And it, but it's not for very good reason. The reason it isn't is that those, there's, there's a kind of a, a quite a solid ideology behind that. 
which is what we want to do is give people a space in which these things work and that other people's weird usage of it doesn't break it. But you know, I, 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 I yeah, yeah, sorry, carry on. No, no, I, I think that it's a big, the big advantage of Bandcamp is that it is using technology that at least on the surface looks like something that only nerds would use and on and nerds that actually love music right so it's sort of like a like a pre-selection of users that actually will spend money so it it makes a whole lot of sense the way that they've been running it and the way that it looks and as you say at the pace with which they roll out new things i think it's genius yeah and i would i i really wish they kind of like keep that attitude Right, because if if they turn it into something that is like, okay, you know, you, you buy music just with one, yeah, with yeah, one click, yeah, yeah, let's yeah, say, yeah. right, it will it will deteriorate into something where like it there's no more there's no more um, uh, direction, let's say. Well, they, they, of they they've already talked about this in terms of that one of the things that Ethan has always described when he's talking about Bandcamp is that it's about high friction interaction. It's difficult to get stuff that paying for stuff is difficult. So it requires a level of commitment. And what you do is you get people used to making that commitment about things they care about. So the difficulty is that you're absolutely right. It's, it's built into the, it's built into the interface and it's there for a reason. And if they had a bank camp currency where you put 50 quid on it a month, then you just click and download whatever it is within that, that it would change the degree of thought that goes into it. And people would engage with the music differently. You'd end up with people buying a bunch of shit they don't need. Like we used to, I don't know if you ever had an e-music account. Did you ever use e-music? So e-music was that, where I would pay £15 a month, I think it was, or £11 a month. And I would get, because they, as it kept going up, I kept staying at the same point. So I would get £22 a month worth of downloads for £11. And I would just go through and, and I would, and, and the crazy thing about that was I would always choose ECM albums because they had the lowest number of tracks on them. So I'd be like, okay, I can buy this Terry A. Ripdale album, which is three songs, mm. and it's effectively <laughs> only costing me 70p. Mm. Brilliant. And so it's mm. by far the cheapest way to get ECM stuff. Um, and, and I think if Bandcamp turned into e-music like that, you would have far less meaningful interaction around the music. What you would have is people accumulating music in ways that was meaningless. Um, and I think that when, when they introduced the fan accounts, I think there was an awful lot that went into what are these for? This is about displaying your record collection, not dick-waving fandom. Like, look at me, I'm the biggest fan. It's like, no, no, here's all of my music. You can, so you basically can send somebody a link and they can scroll through everything you've got. You can't filter it. You can't feature certain things. You know, it's not like saying, look at me, I'm the world's biggest Marcus Reuter fan. It's about saying, here's my collection. And if you scroll through that and you like Marcus's stuff jumps out, you can listen to it but you're basically flicking through the vinyl in my living room. And I really liked the way they did that. They did that with a very, very acute understanding of how fandom functions as a discovery tool. And I find it really interesting how I know quite a few artists who are currently arguing that the, the, the amount they pay to Bandcamp doesn't make sense for them. Because they're like, well, Bandcamp are taking 10%, but all that all I'm getting is, you know, they're just managing downloads for me. I can do that myself. And if that is their experience, that they're actually getting no internal traffic off Bandcamp, then it makes perfect sense for them to, to, to go and build their own thing. But for me, I'm constantly aware that I get more back from Bandcamp than, than I give them. 
that, yes. that that apart from apart from the obvious kind of delivery mechanism stuff that that actually maintaining that and maintaining that many formats that's going to be tough like i i i wouldn't want to have space on my server to host ogvorbis files in case some nerd wanted to download you know .ogg mm-hmm. format audio like that's, that's nuts i want someone else to deal with that but also that thing of bringing someone's collection together in an app and the cross pollination from that the way that i find that, that subscribers arrive because they've they've seen one of my albums being sold on the front page clicked on it and got all oh, that oh, nice artwork what's that oh i like him i'm you know and people who have got a reasonable amount of money just go away oh, 30 quid a year i'll get everything well i'll do that i'll listen to him later but i get a number of people who do that or find me through mm. someone else's collection but what mm. i find is the thing that acts as the kind of the hub of all of that isn't my main Bandcamp page, it's my Bandcamp fan page. Because what I decided to do, I don't know if I described it as a strategy or if it just if it just was a consequence of how I behave anyway. But mm-hmm. but since the since sort of I don't know the mid two thousands, I've been trying to model what good music fandom looks like online, rather than telling people come and buy my stuff. It's like this is what I do to the music that I like. If I like something that somebody does, I'm going to talk about it. There have been years, certainly before the subscription, the subscription has kind of changed this balance. But back when I used to put out one or two albums a year, there would be huge chunks of the year when I was making more money for other people than I was for myself because I didn't have anything of my own to talk about. So I'd go, go and listen to this record. Have a listen to this. Guys, check this out. And it would always be Bandcamp links because that would mean that people would actually sell things and they would get, you know, they would, that was better than sending YouTube links or whatever. So I would use Bandcamp as, as a discovery platform. And I would go, this is how I find and share music. You can do the same. So that anybody who came through me, bought my music, would then have a model for what to do with it. And it wasn't as cynical as that. It wasn't, if I do this, I'll make more money. But it was definitely, people need to see what this platform makes possible. And people need to see that it made much more sense to me to be part of a community of people who who love music and use that platform to expand that space rather than for me to be the person sat behind it all going, I'm just making music and you need to give me money for it. And if you don't, you're a dickhead. Like I just, you know, that it's, I just wanted people to join me on a journey rather than to sit on the opposite side of a table and and, and negotiate with me over what it was worth. Yeah. You know, just on a, on a, a much broader level, think, you know, think back to, uh, 2002, 2005, um when when the idea of digital distribution that has been you know i remember i can't remember the name of it now but there was something that peter gabriel started in around seven seven digital was, yes probably <laughs> and and i remember receiving the um like a printed brochure something about it like like and 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 but at the same time like this narrative that music or the music business is dead that you can't really make uh, money off of music, like Bandcamp really, really turned that around in a in a really amazing fashion. And you know that's why, like, even though I may be criti- critical about a few features, let's say, um, I think it's it's been really like a success story that is kind of unbelievable. I, right, I, like it has really really turned a trend around. I genuinely can't imagine what I'd be doing right now if it didn't exist. I genuinely don't know because. Mm-hmm. I would probably still have a really crap hand-rolled 
download store on my own website because I had a store before Bandcamp. I was I was self hosting mm-hmm. download sales, mm-hmm. and they were 128k MP3s because I was an idiot and didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I would you know I would have obviously at some point <laughs> discovered Flack and discovered this, and I would have had numerous times when I went over the download limit for my server and. You know, I would have been experimenting with that. But I don't, I, I think, back to the thing about Bandcamp being quite controlling in terms of how you use it, it's taught me how to do a lot of things, as well as me being able to, I mean, obviously, I've had input into how Bandcamp works. So by meeting, so from, I don't know, 2011, probably to about 2015, I would meet with Ethan every January. I'd be out there in America for Nam. I would go up to California and we'd just have lunch. And we'd have lunch and he'd say, what do you want it to do? And he'd sit there with a notebook and write down what I've said. And so there would be mm-hmm. times when things that I'd mentioned would crop up in Bandcamp afterwards. And obviously the, the subscription, I had a fair amount to say about that. And I don't know how much of what I said was just in synergy with what they were planning anyway and how many of those bits actually became part of it. Um, but certainly some of it, some of it is things that I came up with. Um, so, but... Without outside of all that, it it just changed the way I act as a fan. You know, like I suddenly had this. I I rebuy albums that I already own because I can't be bothered to open iTunes. I'd rather listen to it on Bandcamp. So I'll go and buy them again on Bandcamp. And you go, okay, what other format does that? That's what I used to do with tapes and CD. Like nobody does that with digital. Why would you do that? I end up doing it with Bandcamp because the option is there, and particularly if it's cheap. You know, like like I wish that. Tom Waits's entire catalog was only five pounds on Bandcamp rather than ten, because I'd just go and replace it all. Because because it's you know I'd love to have it in the Bandcamp app. That's how I do a lot of my listening. Um, but it's all it's all super expensive. Same with Peter Gabriel. Like he's but I'm, I love that Peter's stuff is there. I love that he's you know got got the rights to it and so I can upload it all. Um, but it would be great if if he realised that charging four pounds for it meant that we'd all go and rebuy it rather than charging ten pounds for it and pretending it's a CD. Um, I think that for someone like him, that that would be such a great opportunity to to redraw the boundaries around how we view that. Um, <clears throat> because we would, I would, I would happily go and drop 40, 60 quid on on the entire Peter Gabriel back catalogue, but I haven't got one hundred and twenty pounds to do that. You know, it's, it's it's a bit different. Yeah, it's that's really a really difficult question. I have, I have kind of like started to try to offer less music for free yeah so um but it turns out like that the the most successful model still is just to put it up free yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in I, a way i think i think and I, I love the way that you've managed to kind of you've you've maintained that and because i i the reason i stopped doing pay what you want was mainly so that i could have a single price download of everything that you know the kind of you know where you sort of get this entire digital collection so what i wanted there to be a delineation between the subscription, the one click of everything, but you're not obliged to anything else. It's just kind of, you just get all the music and then album pricing. And so I just went, okay, arbitrarily two pounds an album is what it's going to be right across the site. But like you say about the kind of writing on the blog, all of this exists within a discursive framework that I don't, I don't assume I'm talking to 10,000 people at a time. I get really confused Mm -hmm. when people kind of, because there is enough of my stuff on YouTube and on other other sites, I forget that I have an extended audience of probably I don't know hundred thousand people somewhere out there. There's a you know that there, there, there's a video of mine on on base the world that's been watched one hundred and forty thousand times. So assuming a bunch of those people have watched it twice, 
let's call it a hundred thousand people. Um, and you know, a bunch of other stuff that's been watched 30, 40,000 times on, 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 uh, on YouTube. And I've been featured in magazines. I was on the cover of, I can see up there. See, this is my, my, uh, there we are. there's my, there's my one moment yeah. of, my one moment of, uh, <laughs> of mainstream media success based guitar magazine. It's there cause it's never going to happen again. Um, but you know, so I've had that kind of exposure, but I'm always confused by that audience because because I'm not aware of them most of the time. So when something happens and they suddenly stumble into my orbit again and start asking stupid questions and making weird comments, I'm like, God, I've forgotten you people exist. It's like being underground and you suddenly <laughs> stick your head up and go, oh God, no, not again. Because I'm in this this amazing space where I have this informed, caring, smart community of people who tell me who help me to understand what it is that I do. I'm weirded out by kind of people beyond that wall, you know, which is, and yet, and yet I, I need I, to connect with them because, because they, because that's where the people are that are going to come in. You know, I, I think that there's also something that we have, uh, that we're not always taking into account, which is the fact of like, we are here and we're like around 50 years old. Right. So what, what is going to happen in the next 10, 20 years? And, and I think if you, if you're looking at the careers of, um, other musicians, you see that there's basically like, like there are many different stories, but like, there's like the possibility to grow mm. and there's the possibility to do the other, yeah, 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 yeah. the other way. So since, since you and I, what we've been doing, the trajectory is up. Yeah, yeah, it has yeah. always been go going up, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So and and so the, the so I feel quite confident that we'll get surprised. You know, there's 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 there are some surprises in store for us. But it's it's, it's, um, it's also because we're when we it both, comes to but we both look so young. That's the other thing that we both have going for us is that we might be nearly fifty, <laughs> but, but we both look like we're basically thirty. You know, look at us, we're basically kids. Um, especially you with with your actual hair. Mine's kind of you know disappearing but um uh no no i think that's great although uh, i maybe i should throw this one at you and see what you make of this I, I i nicked this off a friend of mine called andrew dubbo who said this to me about 10 years ago and he said he said that his his way of viewing aging he said he said i've decided he said this when he was he was in his early 40s he said i've decided that my life's work will happen between the ages of 50 and 60 and everything else is practice and I was suddenly super liberated by that, like to go, yeah, I'm going to do that. <clears throat> and like you, I'm, I'm 50 at the end of this year. Right at the point, two months before my 50th birthday, I'll be handing in my PhD. So I will have probably done my Viva either just before or just after my 50th birthday. So I'm hopefully, assuming I don't completely cock it up, I will be entering my 50th year as Dr. Steve with this kind of decade ahead of me to take that and everything that I've the accumulated, the, the, the temple of accumulated error that I've built up around me, <laughs> that is, you know, everything I've learned up to this point and then go, okay, what is this? The, the open vista of my fifties is going to be, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. Partly because I've had, I will have had seven years of, of this part-time PhD and I'm bloody sick of it. Um, yeah, I, I remember you telling me about it even 20 years ago. Come on. <laughs> just, just kidding. No, no, well, no, I, I started, I mean, I, the, the idea came about, about 12 years ago, you know, it was like, it was, I did a talk at Leeds Beckett and they, and then I did a research project at Imperial college and nearly turned that into a PhD. So there were a couple of things about 12 years ago, 
which we may, we maybe talked about. Um, and then yeah, and then seven years ago I actually started it, and and so so it should have been six years part time. I've had a year extension because of COVID, um, but I just need to get it out of the way. But that does mean I'm going to be entering my fiftieth year with that, and all of that that brings with it in terms of the possibility to go places and do things, and you know, it's kind of it's. So, uh, so you asked you, you asked about my perspective. Yeah, yeah what, what what do you think uh, of that thing? So uh, around like around 20, uh, 15 or 20 years ago, when I started to look into um, using, um, uh, you know, somebody doing PR for me, let's say, like where I was researching who would you, who could be working for me. And, and obviously I was looking at more like the people that were promoting experimental music. And it was that time when I started to think, okay, let me look at the artists that these people are actually promoting. And it turned out, like I, you know, I suddenly had this 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 insight. Oh man, these artists, they're all they're at least in their forties. Yeah. And I was in my early thirties, right? And I realized, ah, oh, that means something. Yeah. That means something. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the people, the people that have success that have success. In young, you know, when they are young, they must be the exception. Yeah. Most people are the exceptions. And all the other people that have success, they need to put in the work. They need to put in the years until something happens. And that was kind of like a revelation, but it, it was also, um, uh, it was a relief because I realized, okay, so maybe me trying to force anything on people here yeah. is too early. Maybe yeah. I need to need to have the gray beard before people will actually see me as a valuable voice. That's I, I think I think that's I think that's really I think that's really I think there was a, there was a degree to which you become embedded in in a culture over time, and you become a presence. But I think there's also a, a point at which there is a, a, an entry point into your current work is nostalgia for your older work. And that obviously takes an amount of time. And there are people who, you know, occasionally I'll get an email from somebody and it'll be, or a Twitter message, and it'll be them holding up my first album or my second album going, listen to this, I still love it. And my response is to go, really? Like, given that everything else is out there, you, that, that, okay, that's cool. But then I think about my own listening and kind of go, yeah, there are, there are records from 20, 30, 40 years ago that still mean so much to me. And, and then I realized that I'm that for them. That that record is for 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 them is close to the edge to me, or you know, or or walk across the rooftops, or Secrets of the Beehive, or whatever it is that is that record that has carries that meaning. And so and so, I suddenly feel that immense privilege, but also the fact that that accumulated over time, there is this kind of piling up of of people who have this this historical relationship with what you do, and. The thing that tips them over into reinvestigating what you do is about those kind of you know when you breach certain walls you get I think I'm, I, I would I, I'd be interested to know what joining the stickmen did for you in that way whether or not suddenly people who knew about you all along suddenly went oh now it's okay to like Marcus because he's playing with these legends <laughs> you know I don't really know what the perspective from the outside is really but I can tell you it it has really just um i well no i really think what the main difference is for me is that it gave me an opportunity to interact directly on a social level with exactly what you said at the beginning which and, is and, 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 yeah, yeah. yes and that that is exactly what was happening because like 
<clears throat> I don't know, like at some point I had this idea, okay, so maybe what people actually see in me or how they see me is entirely uh, tinted by the way the music sounds. Yes. Right. So maybe, maybe the music is, and some people did say that is cold for some people. It's cold, right. cold music. I know what they mean. It's like the use of certain scales, let's say, which doesn't sound, sound warm to them. Right. Mm. So, and yeah, I know I use those scales and I have certain, certain production values that I like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like things to be like maybe cold or like they, I like shiny chrome surfaces, right. Yeah. In yeah, my yeah, music, yeah. 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 Right. And, and some people, and and so and so that's kind of like and then I realized okay maybe that's how people see me. That's so and and I have learned I, you know, and I've learned that kind of like uh, the hard way, but also the the very good way that when people meet me, they are shocked. Right. Wow, this is Marcus. Like he's funny. He's actually funny. And you know, he he shakes my head and his hand is warm. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I and that's and that's so interesting because I think. I think there's, there's, there are so many similarities between you and I, I think. And I think that's one of them mm-hmm. is that both of us are, in a sense, we're built for the, for the kind of the, 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 the environment that we're working in, in that we are fairly gregarious, friendly, talkative, literate mm-hmm. people who can write, who can talk, who aren't crippled with self-doubt about our work. That we're not, it doesn't come from a place where we're heroin addicts and our music is our way of kind of trying to deal with that. We're not, you know, we don't have that burden. We make music mm-hmm. as a reflection of how we see the world. But behind that is this high, you know, kind of nice person that exactly like you say, when you meet them at a gig, people want to connect with that. And I, you know, I feel for people who are a lot shyer than that. I mean, you know, and, and I, I'm always interested in how people manage that. I mean, Tony would, would be an example of somebody who's not, you know, I don't think he's crippled, but he's certainly not. He doesn't have that desire to, to kind of be. You as know that out. has that has that has changed. That has changed actually. Has he got more? He's got more outgoing like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Tony has really had a huge learning, like your learning curve there yeah, yeah. with the camp that that the camp of that course. we're doing. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. And so the the camp really opened up and really changed his perspective on fans. That's really interesting. Like he he. Because he's always been like, like he, I first met him. I interviewed him and Trey in '99 for Bassist magazine, and you know I was in my late twenties and wasn't wasn't doing the kind of it was Project One gig at at, uh, at the Jazz Cafe, and I interviewed him before that. And I was I was there. Oh, you were yeah yeah. It was, an, it was an extraordinary extraordinary thing, and we were sat in this basement of some hotel in Notting Hill doing this interview. And, you know, for me, like, obviously, Tony, uh, both of them were, like, these kind of legendary figures. But there was a kind of warmth and a camaraderie. And, and, and I met Tony multiple times over the years. But it was a, always interesting to see him, how he would respond to me when I was the person he knew best. Like, when I remember doing a masterclass and there being, I showed up. And I think of all the people there, like, we weren't, not like we were close friends, but he knew me best. And so he then used me as a kind of filter through which to, to connect with people. So there was always that desire to connect. He wasn't, it's not, I don't think he's ever been anywhere close to misanthropic. It's just, there was just a kind of shyness. And I guess it's, it's that uncertainty that comes with being, having a legendary thing around you like that. It's, it must be really weird because I've never had it because I can go through life assuming that the people I meet don't know who I am. I remember seeing this, we were talking about Jonas before. 
I remember seeing this with, with Jonas at NAM, and I remember walking through NAM with him, and people would walk up to us with that kind of, well, I'm about to talk to you face. And I suddenly realized that for Jonas, there was, he never knew whether the person was going to say, your music has changed my life, or, excuse me, mate, do you know where the toilets are? That it could be <laughs> either of those. And so physically, you respond differently, depending on how you do that. And if you're Jonas, or if you're Tony, then unless there's something in the way, merch table, or for Tony at NAM, it would be being on the Ernie Ball stand holding a music man. And suddenly there's this kind of transactional device between you and him, which gives him a safe space. Otherwise, he has no idea. So the person coming up knows exactly what they want from the, from the encounter, but he doesn't. And it took me a long time to understand what people in that position were dealing with and basically how lucky I am to have the level of anonymity I have. Because if people do recognize me, and it does happen occasionally, I, for, my first thought is, it used to be when I had long hair, it was like, do they think I'm Geddy Lee? Is that, is this person recognize me? Because they actually think I'm in Rush. There was a guy who came up to me at an American airport once. He said, I love your music. And I was like, shit, is he a Rush fan who doesn't know how short Geddy is? Or is he a fan of me? And he was, I think, I think it was me. I think it really was me. But, but like, you know, I had this conversation with this guy about, about how much he liked my music. But I didn't, like, he didn't mention the album title. So I was going to say, is he going to say Grace Under Pressure? Or is he going to say Grace and Gratitude? I don't know which of these he's going to mention. Like, <laughs> but, but like, it's always a surprise. So I can carry myself as though people don't know who I am. And it's not a weird you know, thing. But if you're Jonas or Tony, it is a weird, it is a real, a real kind of. In the case of Tony, certainly it, you know, it's what we discussed before. It's that middleman uh, that was working for him yeah, yeah. or with him yeah, yeah. Um, before. So it, things were very different then. And for people who have been part of that system for 30, 40 years, kind of like make that switch it takes takes some time mm. right and and i think tony has managed to uh to to really uh, open up quite a bit oh i'm really pleased and it's very it's a it's a wonderful thing yeah because yeah. yeah. hey, hey steve yeah, um, i i i do have to go and I, I think like this this was was wonderful yeah and and uh, i think we i think we should do a volume two because i actually want to talk about music and yeah we haven't actually talked about music making at all which is i think is <laughs> i think it does it does leave a kind of really nice volume two i'm I, I marcus i'm up to talk to you every day all the days it's just this has been lovely and uh <laughs> i've wonderful. hugely enjoyed it yeah yeah no it's it's you know i think it's that i had this I, I interviewed zoe keating as i mentioned earlier on for the phd and uh she and i were chatting and all the way through she's going I can tell you this because you understand. And she was just like that, that sudden recognition of being understood. That you're talking a language that often when I talk to journalists, particularly if they're bass journalists, there are assumptions about what a bass player does and what, our, what we want out of music are so far from what it is that I actually care about that you kind of want to go, I don't, it's not that I think what you want is bad. It's just I don't care about it. Like it's not my thing. Can we talk about the thing that actually matters? And they have no idea what it is. So talking to you, where there's this absolute synergy in terms of what it is that we're trying to do and what it all means. It's just, it's just lovely. Thank you. Thank you for indulging it. But yeah, You're let's, welcome. let's do a part yeah. two. I'm definitely up for that. Okay. Bye for now. See you soon. Thank you.